You know, I, uh, I have a website that I go to from time to time, and it will give me snippets of books. And uh, there was one that I just read a few lines from this week. It's, uh, it's called The God-Shaped Heart. The author's name is Timothy Jennings. And he writes this. Hypertension, high blood pressure, has been called the silent killer. But medical professionals didn't always realize this. In fact, he says, some doctors argued that hypertension was a made-up disorder that didn't need to be treated at all. For instance, in 1931, Dr. J.H. Hay proclaimed, the greatest danger to a man with high blood pressure lies in its discovery, because then some fool is certain to try and reduce it. This This is real history. Jennings goes on to say, tragic results, obviously, follow from this idea. Consider the true case of Frank. Frank was diagnosed with hypertension in 1937 at the age of 54. His blood pressure was 162 over 98 and was considered by physicians at the time to be mild hypertension. No treatment was initiated. By 1940, his blood pressure was running 180 over 88. In 1941, his pressure was 188 over 105. He was encouraged to cut back on smoking and work, but his condition didn't improve. By 1944, his pressure was running higher, and he suffered a series of small strokes. This was followed by classic symptoms of heart failure, so he was placed on a low-salt diet with hydrotherapy and experienced some improvement. By 1945, his pressure was 260 over 145. And on April 12th, he complained of a severe headache, with his blood pressure measuring 300 over 190. He lost consciousness and died later that day at the age of 62. Frank is better known as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd president of the United States. Jennings talks about unrecognized problems causing devastating results. And then he says... You know, a lot like sin. But then he adds this. But the problem is much worse. When the professionals who are supposed to identify and treat the problem deny that it even exists. Now, I've never been a fan of the title professional clergy. Though it is a vocational category, from time to time I have taken a survey here or there, uh, asked me to identify my vocation from a list of choices. One of them is professional clergy or religious professional. That sounds just as bad to me. They they smack of of mercenary, do they not? I I I just don't like them. You know, the person who gets paid to get the job done. So I don't think of myself as professional. But the fact is you do pay me to do a job. A certain ministry, which, by the way, I appreciate very much. So, that being the case, should you choose to think of me as a professional, then let the record show that I never want to be on that list of professionals that Timothy Jennings refers to as those who deny the existence of a problem. So, as your pastor, your professional clergy this morning, I am here 
to do my job, and I'm here to tell you that you have a problem. You have a problem. Now, this is not going to be a new revelation to you. In fact, you might think along the lines of, what is it again we pay him for? But you have a problem. You need to know that you have heart disease. And the reason that I can say that with such confidence is because I have the same heart disease. We all have it. Some days, it's worse than others. Some days, my heart disease is worse than yours. Some days, yours is worse. I want to talk about our heart disease in the context of Lent this morning. If you follow the Christian calendar, you know that we begin the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday this week. Lent is a 40-day period plus six Sundays. The last Sunday is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday then is followed by what we refer to as Holy Week. Holy Week is also known as Passion Week in some circles because it reminds us of the passion with which Jesus went through that final week of his life, focused upon the cross, focused upon doing the will of his Father. And we remember that on Good Friday of Holy Week. And then, two days later, we party. We party on Easter Sunday. It's also known as Resurrection Sunday, which is my favorite description because resurrection doesn't make me think of colored eggs and Easter bunnies. However, I like both of them, but I do prefer Resurrection Sunday because the day is really not about colored eggs and Easter bunnies. Now, there are several theories, as you can imagine, on the name and the origin of the season of Lent, but probably the most common one is that the word Lent comes from an Anglo-Saxon term, which means spring or lengthening of days. It's, as far as we can tell, one of the oldest seasons of the church. Irenaeus was a second century church father, and and he writes of a two to three day period describing activity in the life of the church that sounds a lot like Lent. It seems that the uh, Council of Nicaea in the 4th century discussed a 40-day season of fasting. And uh, it was a preparation for the baptism of new converts on Resurrection Sunday. But the purpose of Lent has, in, in most circles for as long as we know, been tied to the idea of personal preparation for Resurrection Sunday, encouraging individuals to do some self-examination, to spend some time in confession, to not be afraid of the activities of, of fasting, personal self-denial in some form. It's not unusual in this season. You will hear it. What are you giving up for Lent? That is a Lenten tradition. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Lent is on the church calendar as an intense, purposeful reminder 
of Jesus' life and ministry. The seriousness of his life and his ministry, beginning with 40 days in the wilderness. He began his adult ministry after he was baptized, and we're told that the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's how his adult ministry began. And then his ministry ended with Holy Week, his crucifixion, the the greatest suffering of Jesus' life. And so to say that Lent is important, I think is a colossal understatement. Lent is hugely significant in the life of the church and hopefully in the lives of the individual followers of Jesus who make up that church. And so this morning, I want to say to you that Lent, I believe, and you can disagree, be wrong if you want, I believe that Lent is a necessary treatment for our heart disease. Now, I know you're thinking at this point, what in the heck are you talking about? So we're going to read from Luke's gospel this morning because it'll, it'll bring it out. If you're in the Immersed Bible Reading Adventure, this will sound familiar because you read it just about a week ago from Luke chapter 14. We're going to stand and read together some words of Jesus. So let's stand and share these words together. Here we go. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down, consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Oh, my sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Do you mean that? Thanks be to God. Go ahead and be seated. Man. So imagine that you are part of the crowd that has been following Jesus. You've seen some incredible things. You have heard some great stories. You have also been amazed by some some deeply profound teaching. And so here you are going along your merry way with the crowd as you have done for some time. 
And suddenly, Jesus stops and addresses the crowd and speaks those words that we just read together. I'm guessing there was quite a stir in the crowd at that point. Maybe a hush? Okay, so you are a member of the crowd, and so is your neighbor. I want you to just, for a minute or two, talk about what on earth did we just hear? What was that about? And how does that make you feel as a follower of Jesus? Okay? Okay, we ready? This seems to have made for some good discussion. All right. What in the world did you just hear as a follower of Jesus in the crowd? And, and how does it make you feel? Who wants to start? You feel that bad, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, th- this is an aside, but you remind me. You know the name Juan Carlos Ortiz, Argentinian evangelist, was real popular in, in late 70s through mid to late 80s. Um, in his book, Disciple, he talks about how in the years that he was pastoring in Argentina, um, they, would, they would vet people on their readiness to be a follower of Jesus. That was the point of the 40 days of preparation for baptism in the early church. Because baptism meant, I'm all in. And if in those 40 days they found something that was amiss in your life, the church was not hesitant to say, we don't think you're ready to make this kind of a commitment. It's huge. What else did you hear? And how do you, O follower of Jesus in that crowd, feel about what he's just said? (laughs) Kind of a constant state of confusion. Yeah. Yeah. It feels that way, doesn't it? Right. He did it again. What's he thinking? Yeah. That's right. That's right. And numbers are critical if you're going to overthrow a government, which was probably percolating in their minds somewhere. Lee comes just before this story in Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, this, this narrowing of the crowd, this, this, this standard. Of course it does. <laughs> I love that. And by the way, do you know what the Greek word is there for hate? It's hate. Isn't that a bummer? It's the word hate. We'll give it a shot. We'll try to understand it. <laughs> So you felt like it was the Lord that spoke into your life at that point. Exactly. There's no doubt that in the first century, following Jesus was exciting. You know, for, for the reasons that, that Karen was referring to, look at, look at what happens. Look at, look at all the good things. Look what comes to us. Reading about the life of Jesus in the gospel re- reminds us that, that following Jesus God in the flesh was an adventure. They'd never been with anyone like Jesus. There was just no telling what he was going to say or, or do next. But here's the thing, and we know this. 
But we need to be reminded. Jesus' life was more than an exciting adventure. There's no doubt that that those who followed him got to see the power of God up close. But Jesus' life wasn't a show to be observed. He did a lot of amazing things that were observed, but that wasn't the point of his life. His life was a mission. I believe that that Jesus was the most fun, the most amazing human being ever, because he was the most authentic human being ever. He was perfect in his humanity, perfect relationship to God, unfettered by by sin. But it's precisely because he was human that he was on a mission. God in the flesh come into the world on a mission. Jesus knew why he was in the world. He came to do the will of the Father. And the Father's will was that the Son be given as a sacrifice for the sin of humanity. And Jesus the Son was all about doing the will of the Father. And that made him focused and urgent. When he made statements like these that we've read this morning, he caught the attention of those who were following him and he challenged them to think hard about what it was he was really up to and to cause them to think, what is it that I am in this for? Why am I following him? Jesus was confronting those in the crowd with the reality of their heart disease. And it's the same one that we have. Can we put it up, Don? Me-ism. Now, the definition of ism a distinctive practice, system, or philosophy. That makes meism a distinctive practice, system, or philosophy about moi. And that's who we are. From the first breath that we take until the last one, we are about self. I have the disease, you have the disease. It's the human condition. We, we are born with it. Our hearts, that, that place in the Hebrew vocabulary that is the center of a person, the place of their will and their decisions, the human heart views everything in life through the lens of self-concern. How does this benefit me? Is this good for me? Is this bad for me? Will this, will this be profitable? Is this worth my time? Will I be appreciated for this? Will I be recognized? Will people think better of me? Will I be popular? Do you recognize meism? 
So Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And their world was rocking at this point to hear those words. Jesus knew the human heart. He knew that people were checking him out. He knew that they had meism. And he knew that unless he verbally threw down the gauntlet, many in the crowd would never deal with the seriousness of their heart disease. The Jewish culture prized family prized family. It was a culture in which one's reputation and esteem or shame was tied to the family name. One's genealogy and heritage were a source of pride. The number of children, especially sons, sorry ladies, the number of children were a source of pride. Respect for one's father and mother and and care for them. Particularly as as they aged. Because a person had to be concerned about their inheritance. Meism. When Jesus said those words, he was saying to them, your heart has to make a choice about who you're living for. It's all or nothing. Did he actually want them to hate their family members? I don't think so. But he certainly used the word that meant hate to catch their attention. Has he gotten your attention? Has he gotten my attention? Oh my goodness! we can be sure that Jesus used the word because he wanted no rivals for the affection of their hearts. Because remember, his life was not a show to be enjoyed. His life was a mission. And it was one in which he was inviting them to join him. A mission from the Father and the stakes were and still are High. And he was setting the standard for commitment outrageously high because the mission was that important. God needed to be exalted. The role of God and the plan of God and the delight of God in the plan of salvation that came from the loving heart of God for sinful and broken people needed to be made known in the world. God needed to be exalted for coming up with such an outrageous plan like this. And meism doesn't want to exalt God. Meism wants to exalt me. So Jesus throws out the standard. That's what they needed to hear. And we, my brothers and sisters, we need to hear it too. We need to hear these words anew. Whoever does not carry their cross 
and follow me cannot be my disciple. (laughs) Remember, these folks lived under Roman rule. They knew about crosses. They knew what was happening to a person who they would see walking down the street dragging a cross that was weighing them down. They knew what that meant. Jesus knew that the only real cure for the human heart disease of meism would be his own death on the cross, which would then set the stage for the Holy Spirit to take up permanent residence in his followers, empowering them to die to self and live with passion for the one who died for them. No longer life for self. Life for the one who gave himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, the name German pastor, part of the the Nazi resistance in World War II, said that a call to follow Jesus is a call to die. And he did. Thomas Kempis, 14th century German monk, wrote, Jesus has many who love his kingdom in heaven, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire comfort, but but few who desire suffering. He finds many to share his feast, but few his fasting. All desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer for his sake. Many follow Jesus to the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of of the cup of his passion. Many admire his miracles, but few follow him in the humiliation of the cross. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that we will will never be completely cured of our heart disease in this life. It just raises its head from time to time. But... I do believe that it can be controlled with medication. And that medication is called obedience. Obedience. An Applewood family, Lent is a season for contemplating obedience. It is an opportunity that is marked out on the calendar for us by the historic church that recognizes, wow, humanity's got a heart problem. Wow, the people of God, even though the heart has been redeemed, they still have a heart problem. We lack obedience. We we lack obedience. Discipline. We, we lack seriousness when it comes to understanding the mission and the purpose of Jesus. I am sometimes just horrified with how easily I am casual about these truths. God, forgive me that I would ever forget and value something more than the sacrifice of Jesus for my life. 
That's what Jesus was calling these people to. That's the gauntlet that he was throwing down. Count the cost. Assess your heart. Look around in your life and identify the things that call to your heart. And recognize they've got to go. Because there's no divided hearts, there's no split loyalties with Jesus. Many of us are reading through the New Testament in this season with the Immerse Reading Adventure. And I'm so glad that we are. I can't imagine a better way to open our hearts to the medication of obedience than to hear the words of Jesus again and again. You know, by the time you get through John's gospel, you begin to think, gosh, I believe he might have meant these things. You know, the, the perspective of the four different writers, including some of the very challenging statements of Jesus, they, they begin to sound familiar. And I, and I think they begin to, to work their way into our hearts. And the Spirit, if we desire that, if we recognize the seriousness and the urgency of what Jesus is saying, we begin desire for the Spirit to open our spiritual eyes to those things in our lives that call to our hearts and rival the affection that belongs solely to him. And that process is a good thing. Not a comfortable thing at all, but it's a good thing. That's why we do Lent, to be uncomfortable. I think Jesus was probably pretty uncomfortable for the 40 days that he spent in the desert fasting and praying. I think Jesus was probably pretty uncomfortable as they beat him and as they mocked him and as they shamed him and as they nailed him to the cross and spit on him and disrespected him. That's why we do Lent, to be reminded of the one who suffered for us, to be reminded of the heart that he calls us to, to be reminded of what he has done. Think about our adventure in Philippians, the journey to joy. We found that joy can can find its way into a person's life in the strangest of places. Joy in suffering. Who finds joy in suffering but a wacko? And, and those who follow Jesus and recognize that God is in the suffering. God is always in the suffering. God is always purposeful in the events and circumstances of our lives. Even the stuff that hurts, there's joy that bubbles up in our lives. Joy in serving. Jesus said the Son of Man came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's such an outrageous statement because we know that that one is the creator of the universe. But God in humility sends a baby risking his care in the hands of two people who'd never done it before to live this obscure life until he became an adult and began his ministry only to be rejected and scorned and killed ultimately. 
joy in serving? You must be kidding. Because people don't necessarily appreciate those who serve them. They don't even necessarily notice those who serve them. And how do you do that? Unless you understand and desire to obediently follow after the one who served us and experience the joy that comes from being like Jesus. Joy in in knowing that, that Jesus is worth more than anything in life. Joy in giving even when it doesn't make sense. Those are, those are all possible when we respond to life and circumstances as Jesus would and, and calls us to do. That's the obedience that is the medication for our heart disease. Because make no mistake about it, this heart disease kills the life of God in us. This heart disease wants us to focus on self and to make life about us. Jesus calls us to wholehearted commitment. I love the way that John Ortberg describes surrender to Jesus. One of his sermons, he compares it to driving a car. I love Ortberg. He's so funny. Listen to this. When it was time to take our first child home from the hospital, we put her in the car seat in the back of the car, and then I got in the front seat to drive. She was so small that even the baby seat was way too big. She looked so fragile to me that I drove home on the freeway going 35 miles per hour with the hazard lights flashing the whole time. (laughs) That first day when your kid is in the car with you is a scary day. I remember my son Luke and Jessica saying, gosh, they just gave us permission to drive away from the hospital with this baby. What do we know? We don't know what we're doing. Is it okay to do this? Orberg says that is a scary day. But you know what the really scary day is? With your kid in the car, it's when they turn 16. And now you're handing over the keys. Now they're moving from the passenger seat, from the ride-along seat into the driver's seat. That's a scary moment. It's a big moment in your life when you hand someone else the keys. Up until now, I've been driving. I choose the destination. I choose the route. I choose the speed. You're in the driving along seat. But if we are to change seats, you're going to drive. If you're going to drive, I have to trust you. It's all about control. Whoever is in the seat is the person in control. A lot of people find Jesus handy to have in the car as long as he's in the ride-along seat. You know, I hate that bumper sticker that says Jesus is the co-pilot. <laughs> Get out of the car. <laughs> Jesus in the ride-along seat, we're, we're comfortable. Something may come up that requires his services. Jesus, I have a health problem. I, I need some help. I want you in the car, but I'm not so sure I want you driving. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my life anymore. If he's driving, I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. If I put him in control, then it's no longer a matter of giving some money now and then when I'm feeling generous or when more of my of it is is coming into my life. Now it's his wallet. It's scary. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition. No, no, it's his agenda. It's his life. Now I'm in charge of, I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore either. I, I don't get to gossip, flatter, cajole, deceive, rage, intimidate, manipulate, exaggerate. I get out of the driver's seat and hand the keys over to him. I'm fully engaged. In fact, I'm more alive than I've ever been before, but it's not my life anymore. It's his life. Yeah. Brothers and sisters, don't let this 
40-day plus six-Sunday season in your life go to waste. Recognize the wisdom of God that has come through the councils of the church over the centuries to be reminded that this is a period of time to focus more than ever upon the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus and to examine our hearts. I'm not going to tell you what that looks like. But I do know that it will require sacrifice. You'll have to sacrifice some time if you want to be intentional about sitting and and listening, thinking, responding. You may have to sacrifice some money. You may have to sacrifice some sleep. You know, intentional times of listening and confession and self-denial. That's what Lent is about. Because the reality is that most of us live our lives in the other realm. Fast-paced, busy, lots to do, making life happen because it's about me. Lent reminds us, no, no, it's not. It's not about you. Let's take some times to remember Who's it's about? Jesus gave his life for us. How could anything be more important than marking that out in some way between now and Resurrection Sunday? Do I hear an amen? Amen. Praise team. Come on up, and as you come, I want to pray for us this morning. I'd like to give you just a couple of minutes of silence to... Just open your heart and listen. Maybe for some particular things that God wants to bring to your mind this morning that call for the affections of your heart over Jesus. Or maybe some particular challenges or ways that, that God is calling you into this experience of Lent. Let's just be quiet for a few moments and then I'll pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, risen and exalted Lord Jesus, mysterious and indwelling Holy Spirit, you, O God, Father, Son, and Spirit, before the foundations of the world, put a plan of salvation for lost and broken creation to be redeemed through the death and perfect sacrifice of the Son. We hear these words of the Son this morning, and I will admit, and perhaps my brothers and sisters share the sentiment, I don't like that word, hate but yet I recognize that in that word there is a heart check for me. There is a heart check for us. Because we can insert those things into that statement 
that are in our life that call to our heart's affections. And you know how easily we give ourselves to things rather than you. So I pray, oh God, for all of us who are a part of the Applewood family, that we would be people who are willing in these days of Lent to be intentional about opening our hearts to you. Holy Spirit, have your way of conviction, of challenge, of encouragement. Lord Jesus Christ, be exalted in and through our lives as a result of the Spirit's challenge and teaching and empowering. We might live in ways that bring you glory, bring our hearts back into perfect alignment with the Father. And, O Father, we thank you that you are indeed a good Father who loves us more than we understand. May these days of Lent be days of examination, days of hearing and responding, days of confession, days of rejoicing as we experience a closer walk with you. For we call ourselves followers of Jesus. By your grace, may we follow closely and obediently for your praise, for your glory, for the good of our world who needs to know our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.